Okay, uh, Dr. Ash Orly Ashenfelter, um, uh, I just want to say thank you for um, uh, this opportunity to meet with you. Uh, on my wall right here is uh, the Broad Street Pump by Jon Snow, who uh, you share something in common with, which is the, the, uh, the discovery of the difference in differences design. And uh, it's really an honor to get to meet you and talk to you. I'm glad you know about the snow story. That was uh, first circulated amongst economists, I think, by uh, the statistician who died David pretty Friedman. young. He was, uh, yeah, now died pretty young. Now it was at Berkeley. Very interesting guy, but you know he had his own. He, he made a lot of people angry for reasons that he didn't have to. I never understood. Oh, that. really? I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah I well, he, he had many, you know, where the controversy in statistics was at the time is about imputation in, in the census. In fact, this whole thing has come up again. Uh, and if you notice the, this week, uh, the Census Bureau with John About, who's the chief scientist there, terrific guy uh, who I worked with and who was at Princeton at one time also in the industrial relations section. Uh, you know, they, they designed the census so they could try to estimate the undercount for various groups. And uh, I listened last night to the uh, PBS NewsHour discussion of this, which at least they had something. But of course, they didn't answer the simple question is, you know, the, it was it was presented as if, well, you know, if the, if you knew there were four million Hispanics undercounted, why didn't you count them? <laughs> the whole point is we didn't know that there there. This was a good design. It was a beautifully designed uh, way to figure out an estimate of what the undercount might have been using the system that we used. Yeah. So they, they completely missed the point, unfortunately, which is sad because it's, it's, a, I'm afraid as a comment more broadly on uh, the role of economics and statistics. And that's what he was concerned about is, you know, imputation and things like that. That's, that's where st statisticians get controversial. Right. Friedman, David Friedman. Yeah. 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 Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. His, uh, his, his uh, book, I used to teach it. Um, that's when I, that's also where I learned about snow for the first time. I think now with COVID, we all kind of know about him a lot more. Yeah, he, uh, he, that's right. He, he really popularized the snow thing. You're exactly right. As a sort of a, it was a kind of a tweak of economists and other social, other social scientists too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I kind of wanted to talk about two things. I kind of wanted to talk about your life. Uh, your professional life uh, and sort of your career. And then also I had some questions about economics that I just uh, wanted to kind of just sort of have a chat about. So um, uh, it seems like uh, Princeton in the 70s and the 80s was a real fertile ground for some sort of revolution in empirical micro. <clears throat> and uh, the, in my mind, it, it starts with you and Albert Reese. And I was just wondering uh, what, what impact he had on you as a, a young economist and, you know, how do you think you're, you know, you would have been different if at all, had you not, you know, uh, been, you know, known him? Uh, Al Reese was, a, um, you know, he had moved from Chicago uh, and for personal reasons, really, uh, but he fit in perfectly at Princeton. And of course, he ultimately had other positions. He was a provost of the university and so on. Um, he, uh, he was a very gentle, open-minded man. I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody quite as 
uh, open-minded about things. And uh, he was also extremely empirically oriented, although he knew uh, economic theory. He has a really nice paper uh, about a, a sort of a Herberger style, dead weight loss of trade unions. Mm. And uh, it basically shows it's not very big. Mm. But um, he, uh, uh, he, he was very uh, encouraging. So he, he let people do what they want. I, and I, I took my own style from that. So uh, I, I've never tried to, I like to make sure students are working on interesting on problems that might uh, be useful for them to work on. But other than that, I, I try not to be too forceful about how they do it. Mm. Uh, he had just come off of a book, which is people, it's completely lost that people don't know about it anymore. It was one of the very first micro studies of empirical studies of labor markets. Mm. Uh, he did it with, of all people, George P. Schultz, the famous mm -hmm. George Schultz, who was Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, and just died recently at 100. Um, they were great friends. And what they did was to collect data uh, from individual firms and then study wage determination using a regression design. Uh, so he, he kind of already, when he arrived at Princeton, he was still trying to finish that work. It, it did finally come out. But he was a real pioneer in, in that regard and is completely unknown today. I mean, in, in that work, I mean, in a sense, because it was one of the very first, well, it might have been the first uh, use of modern econometric tools on microdata collected by the authors from uh, individual firms. Wow. Wow. That's, I, didn't know, I didn't know it was their own collection of it. Yeah, they collected the data. They had to get access, to, you know, they, and they focused on pretty narrow occupations, uh, like, well, <laughs> key punch operators, which, of course, nobody even knows what those are anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I guess, we, well, you know, in the old days, you had, to, you, you had to sit in front of a typewriter and, and punch data into cards, and then the cards went into the computer. And so, you know, today we bypass all that, but yeah, right. uh, okay. it was a real job at one time. Wow. Wow. Uh, uh, and so his impact on you, what, what was it like, uh, you know, being associated with him? What, what influence did you feel like you changed? Because of Well, he, he had some strong, uh, I'll tell you, he was very responsible uh, for studies work on economics of discrimination. Mm. He, he, he actually had, um, Becker had been at Chicago uh, as a student when Reese was there and Becker had worked on that topic. But there was also, uh, Becker relied in his little book, <clears throat> Economics Discrimination, on a, a PhD thesis, which had been written in Chicago about male-female wage differences. Mm. So it's no accident that Ron Oaxaca of the famous Oaxaca decompositions was a student of Al's and that Al is, you know, wanted him to work on this kind of topic. <clears throat> I could be helpful because I actually understood how the regression system worked pretty well, so we could do it. But um, he was very interested, and we had a, a conference was quite a blue chip deal in its time on the economics of discrimination. So he he had a certain some topics he was very passionate about, um, and that was one uh, wow. race and sex discrimination. Wow. So that influenced me and others. I think. When I was that? Us. What year I was just, that? Well, let's see. My, my dissertation was on economics of discrimination oh. uh, with some very surprising results. Uh, 
and that would have been, I forget when he arrived at Princeton, it would have been, oh, maybe 67, oh. maybe 1967. Huh. Yeah, he was quite, um, but he had his, you know, he, he also had his sights set on, on uh, you know, he ended up, uh, uh, he went to work at the Council on Wage and Price Stability, which was mm -hmm. kind of an amusing thing to do with Gerald Ford, and, uh, and then ended up as provost at Princeton and, of course, finally as president of the Mellon Foundation. Mm -hmm. I think he kind of felt, he's not the only one, he kind of felt that uh, the way that the technical requirements in economics, uh, technical skills, that he, he had been trained in the, in the, in the 40s, 30s and 40s, and he, I think he felt that the technical things that were being done were kind of moving too fast for him. Oh, really? Wow. You, what, what's the technical stuff? The the develop the neoclassical modeling? Well, instrumental variables and all oh. the usual kind of you know you're, you have to remember that uh, the two the textbooks that really brought econometrics to economics were by uh, Johnson and Goldberger. And they weren't published until 1964. So, you know, people like me cut their teeth on those books, yeah. but th th that would not have been available. In fact, I was, even the way we teach micro uh, using calculus, that was not common. I mean, in the mm -hmm. old days, it's sort of amazing to meet sometimes these economists who can actually work through analyses of demand and supply without using any mathematics. I'm not even sure I could do it. Right, right, right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. Um, uh, well, as, as wondering about, you know, I, I think a lot about the, the influence of these job training programs that you had studied and then, you know, it going into. Well, that, that was a, that was a, that was a kind of an epiphany for me. That was a special moment. And I think card refers to this actually in his Nobel lecture, but you know, the guy who's tracked this down is Neto in his PhD thesis, this yeah. Brazilian guy, he has really tracked that down. What happened to me was very simple. I was, um, I just gotten tenure at Princeton and George Schultz had been secretary of labor. Most people don't know this in the first Nixon administration. And he brought in without a doubt, the finest uh, people ever to serve in the positions in that, in that department. Uh, Arnold Weber, who subsequently became uh, president of Northwestern, was the, in the Manpower Administration, as they called it then. Uh, the Solicitor General had been at the Red Cross. I mean, it was a fantastic group of people, and including Michael Moscow, who was my boss, turned out, ended up as president of Chicago Fed. Um, anyway, uh, there was a guy named Farber, not Hank Farber. I think his name was David Farber, who had really cracked... Uh, I think, uh, the code in the sense that uh, people wanted to evaluate the effective training programs, but how do you get data to do that? Mm. Uh, what he had done is actually, he had hit like as if he were in school, each trainee was linked by their social security number. And Farber was a guy who I'm not sure who got a hold of him. He was at the social security administration. He knew how this is the same technique, by the way, that Angers used when he studied the Vietnam draft. So this guy Farber had um, managed to figure out how to get the data from on Social Security records for trainees. 
So, and, and had to add the continuous work history sample as well for a potential control group. Mm. So I was presented with the option to go to Washington. They, I had to be a bureaucrat there. I was director of something called the Office of Evaluation. But what really attracted me was the fact that this guy had really produced data that no one ever had ever seen in yeah. any environment anywhere before. Mm. It's a complete new thing, right? Uh, so we actually had longitudinal data on individuals. We could see exactly what happened to them. And also we had a, potentially a control group from the continuous work history sample. Mm. Uh, so I went there with an undergraduate who subsequently got a PhD in MIT. And we did the first early work on training programs. There are two papers that came out of that that, were, that are quite important that most people are not aware of. One is the 1978 paper that you mentioned uh, in RE Stat, Review of Economic Statistics. By the way, that was turned down by a lot of other journals, mm. <laughs> <laughs> at least the American Economic Review, I remember, which I subsequently edited and certainly would have accepted uh, <laughs> if, it, if I'd been the editor. Um, that paper, and, and then there was a second paper, which were preliminary results were shown, which is really obscure. It's in the Proceedings of the Industrial Relations Research Association. And in that paper, I actually proposed using randomized trials. Yeah. Uh, and pointed out, uh, it, there's a subsequent paper called The Case for Randomized Trials and Training Programs. But this was, this was really the first time I think anybody had proposed that this was, a, you know, we had the data collection system. We just didn't have the randomization you need. And I had come to think after working with these data for quite a while, that the complexity of the control group that you needed was, was really beyond uh, anything that I could do without randomization. In fact, that was demonstrated pretty conclusively by, by Bob Lalonde and his now yeah. unfortunately gone yeah. in, his, in, his, in, his, in his paper and PhD thesis. Yeah. Uh, so that was, for me, that was a great moment. Yeah. Wow. And, and of course, the difference and differences came about in a very simple way. Here I am running regressions with hundreds of thousands of observations, you know, fixed effects for individuals, fixed effects for time periods, which is a very powerful design. Yeah. And I'm trying to present this to other people in the labor department and around the government. And you walk in and say the word regression analysis and people's eyes glazed over. But I realized after the first time I presented this work that you can't use that word. Uh-huh. So I started to think, well, what, what are we doing here? And I realized since we had uh, uh, a balanced longitudinal sample, we were uh -huh. just taking a difference and subtracting off a difference. And it was just a difference in differences. So it was, it wasn't, I mean, it was a regression. I did it with regressions. Right? Mm -hmm. You never actually calculated differences, right. differences, except to show people. So it right. was, it was designed as a very simple, transparent way to show. I mean, everybody could understand. Yeah. Okay. You calculate this average and this average. You subtract them. Then you take this average and this average, subtract them, and then you subtract the two. So we have three subtractions in a bunch of averages. Anybody right. can do that. Yeah. And of course, it's an extremely powerful design. Uh, now everybody uses, it, of course. Yeah. But, and it, it yeah. came to be called that difference of differences. I don't. It's hard for me to say where that really entered. I mean, Card remembers the time that I first started saying that, and I guess it was probably when I came back from the government. I was, you know, we were still trying to get people to understand, you know, that the what, other thing to remember is that the idea of having micro data with person effects and year effects, that was pretty demanding. I mean, there's yeah. not very yeah. many data sets where you could do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when did you start to wrap your head around this parallel trends assumption that that's become so central well, in the and dev? Yes. Well, let me just explain how that comes about. If you look at the 78 paper, the big, it's not real, the parallel trends is kind of a silly way to put it. I don't know. I think I forgot who put, came up with that phrase, but here's what, here's what we did. Okay. I had several years of, of, of data prior to each trainees entering the training program. Okay, so let's say you enter the program in 1964. I have data on you in 63, 62, 61, 60. Okay. Now, if 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 the if the simple difference in differences works, then it should be the case. If I take the now, let's say the after period is 1965. Let's just say that. Okay, we're going to leave 64 out because you're in training. So I take the difference between your pay in 65 and 63 for the trainee group, and I take the difference in pay at 65 and 63 in the continuous work history sample, and I take that difference, okay? And I get an estimate of the training effect. Now, let's do it again. If that, if that training effect is estimated accurately without a, without a specification bias, then I should be able to take 65 minus 62 yeah. and do that for the trainee group. And, and that should give me the same answer. Mm. Okay. Suppose it doesn't give me the same answer. Then I know there's something wrong with the difference of differences program. Mm. So what I did actually at that, it was clear in the data I had at that time, it was quite clear that if you use the difference between 63 and 65, mm -hmm. um, because it was a big dip from 62 to 63, you'd get a quite different answer from if you took from 62 to 65. Mm. Uh, and it did stabilize, and that data I had then, it stabilized. So if you took, instead of taking 63, you took 62, 61, or 60, basically you got the same effect. So uh, it seemed more likely that uh, the assumption that, you, that, 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 that the difference was stationary and that, and that it was, there wasn't. A tr so the point here, Heckman actually pointed this out first, is that in the longitudinal data, you can imagine that selection takes place on permanent effects, okay? If selection takes place on permanent effects, that makes life very simple because then you can use the difference 63 to 65. But if it takes, if, but let's suppose that, that it takes place on overall effects. So I'm gonna select on people's incomes. It's got a permanent component and a transitory component, okay? If the transitory component is surely uncorrelated, okay, then if you if you just ignore uh, the period sixty three, go to sixty two, okay, that assumption about earnings means that it will be that, that all the differences from sixty two to sixty five, sixty one, sixty five, so it will all be the same. All right. The key is there's two things. One is, and this is all laid out. By the way, in in our in, in subsequently, Card and I did a paper. I've forgotten when that is in the '80s, I think. Uh, that's all laid out. So basically, the selection divides. There's two things going on. There's the selection, and then because you're using longitudinal data and you're using a person to control it for themselves, there's also this question of what the earning structure is. In other words. Can the earning structure be described as just a permanent effect and a transitory effect, which is serially correlated, or is it a permanent effect plus a transitory effect, which is serially correlated, but 
only one, one, you know, with the order one with the zero correlation, order two, or so those two things. In order to use that method, you really need to be able to say to, to identify both those things. Uh -huh. That's that's extremely demanding. And so I thought, well, randomization makes some sense. And in fact, the Labor Department did sponsor a randomized training program. I mean, a randomized program for studying the effects of trainees. Uh, subsequently, I was not involved in that. Um, mm. But in fact, Heckman was involved. He got interested in that too. Mm. But yes, it became a kind of a... So the parallel trends thing is kind of silly because what it really means is are the, if you take enough differences, are they all the same answer? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really right. what you're after. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it should be linked to what you think is a selection program. Yeah. as well yeah. as the underlying. Uh, so that's not the way people do it very much, but that's what we originally did. I see, I see, I see. Well, I, well, maybe I made that too complicated, but if you look at the two papers, you'll see those two papers together more or less explain this in great detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, that's, so, that's so interesting that you were championing physical random, randomization uh, decades before this randomization explosion happened what, what was that controversial or was it was it just well it, it, it you know who favored the the I, I i had good experience with art goldberger so the problem the first that when you're in the government and this by the way is no different from what uh you face now in, in clinical trials uh the the first problem you had and i had an answer for this was um, there are two, so typically the, the, the objections came from the people who operate the programs. Um, and um, the first objection was, well, we know training is great. We can't deny someone access to training. Right. Okay. Now, the fact of the matter is we didn't have enough money to get, to give everybody training who wanted it. Oh. So I said, well, okay, I understand that. That's fine. So when we select, what's a, what, what fairer way is fair way. Select yeah. than to do it randomly? So yeah. actually, that's in the paper. I put that I, in the paper. That old paper says exactly that. Right. The, other objection, the other objection, which Goldberger had really handled, was, well, let's suppose that we think some people in the people that want to be trained are more likely to benefit from it than others. Mm -hmm. I said, well, look, as long as we select on ex ante factors, we don't have to have the same number of people and, and, and we, in other words, we, could, we could create for the control group and the, and the treatment group groups that based on some objective characteristic you can give me. Now it can't be a non-objective characteristic, which of course a lot of times they want to say, well, I know who's going to be, who's going to benefit from this program, right. even though I can't explain to you why. Now, I say, right. no, that's not, you can't do that. You have to be able to explain why. You can explain why. Then what we can do is set up these groups and we can have different uh, uh, fractions of people go into the training program in them. So if you have, a, if you have say, group one, highly beneficial, well, let's, we'll put 90% of them in the training program. As long as we have a control group, we can still look at it. This, by the way, this whole idea then was picked up in the negative income tax experiments because yeah. they, they did that same, I mean, they did an extremely uh, complicated too, frankly, complicated version of what was going on there. But the person behind that really was Art Goldberger who just worked out that the cost of not randomizing. So this is actually in the paper too. 
So if you ask yourself, how you don't have to put the same number of people in the control group as the treatment group. So why do we want to put the same number in the treatment group? And the reason is because of power. Right. All right. The sampling error of the difference is uh, maxim, uh, minimized when, 50, when it's 50-50. I, I haven't had the formulas actually in there mm. uh, uh, in, in the paper. And I know that it was used because the, the uh, Manpower Demonstration Corporation was set up. Bob Solo was on the board and I had sent him the paper and they were basically making that point. Mm. That was a company that was devoted really to randomization. I don't know if you know that. There was a whole company devoted to randomization before anybody had a gleam in their eye that randomization was common, but it was quite common in various kinds of training programs starting wow. in the movement. Wow. So in labor, what did the what did the journals and the referees think with you physically randomized? Were they well it's no accident that the industrial labor relations uh this paper is in the proceedings of the IRA because there's no referee. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That was easy for me to get that published. No problem. <laughs> of course, that thing is not even in, in, in JSTOR, I don't think. I'm not even sure that those papers are they're so inaccessible. And then, you know, the, and of course, the organization changed its name. So it's no longer the proceedings of the IRA. It's the proceedings of the LERA. Uh, so, I mean, it's just extremely obscure. I mean, everybody that was working in the area back in the day knew about it. Uh, one way that we made that true was in the Labor Department. This is a very funny story, by the way, which I'm perfectly happy to tell you and, and have others know about. But we, very wonderful people were brought into the Labor Department. I mean, uh, George Johnson, uh, Ernie Stromberg, a lot of great people that were, Dan Hammermesh, all these people were in the Labor Department at one time or another as a result of this thrust that had really been created in part by the people that George Schultz had brought in. Anyway, we, I wanted to have a working paper series that we could use to circulate around the government. So we called them technical analysis papers, right? That technical right away means you, no one's going to pay attention. So <laughs> would ask me, I'd go give a talk and they'd say, why, why are you? Okay, I'd say today, George Johnson came up with it. He was such a joker. I, I said, today I'm going to be talking about tap number three. And they'd say, tap number three. Yeah, I said, in the labor department, we actually know how many taps we have, unlike the Justice Department. <laughs> it was a Nixon administration, and they were doing wiretaps and nobody knew about it. So I, yeah, unlike the Justice Department and the Labor Department, we act. Now imagine that was in the government. I said, yeah, right. Nobody, nobody, nobody objected. It was perfectly okay. Uh, you know, a lot of the people in the government at that time were really extraordinary people. They had come in during the 30s when government, federal government jobs were, you could pick out the very best people. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know this, but, you know, even people like Sam Liston and Friedman worked for the federal government in the, in the Second World War. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was actually a statistician originally. Yeah, I remember reading that. Um, uh, you know, when I, in my brain... Princeton, uh, as a department, the, the industrial relations and labor group in the 70s and 80s was just this, uh, it, you know, this like this ground zero for a real, you know, revolution that that uh, changed all empirical micro, arguably. And um, uh, there's this quote that uh, I remember, um, I'm not going to get it right, but uh, a journalist went up to Dizzy Gillespie and said, uh, you know, why did you set out to create Bebop? And Gillespie said, 
I didn't set out to create anything. I was just making music. And so I was kind of curious, uh, was it ever the case in the, in Princeton in the seventies or eighties where you sort of felt like something, we're sort of a different department and we're doing different things that you could feel was important. Well, it wasn't, uh, no, I was, I think Dizzy Gillespie nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think we do it just for doing what we thought we should do. Uh, it is true. So, think about Princeton, this Bobby don't know. Uh, the industrial relations section actually spanned more than one department. It, it, it dates back to the 1920s. Mm. It predates the department. Uh, the Department of Economics at Princeton was not created until 1960. Oh, it was originally wow. a department of economics and sociology. And the university at that point decided there should be a separate department. Mm. I mean, Princeton still has, for example, uh, we don't have a department of French. We have a department of Romance languages. And it has in it not just French speakers, but uh, people from, uh, well, it's been split up a little bit now, but I think the French and Italians are in the same department. They mm. call themselves that, French, even if they're not from Italy or France. So there, there was a, the, the industrial relations section had been well-financed, had been endowed, and it was going really before the department. And it created a kind of a umbrella with very good financing. I mean, we brought in money from the government too, but it, it created a, an, um, a, a financial umbrella so that we were, people were able to really do what they wanted. It's still true, by the way, and, and not have to be too concerned about where the money comes from if you want to collect data or do something. So it's not an accident that a lot of people were, were willing and able to start collecting data who were connected with it because we didn't have to worry about where we were going to get the money from. We had a place to get it from. Alan Kruger, in fact, started our survey research center. Yeah, we have a survey research center that still survives. And uh, he started it. Uh, it. It does a lot more than just labor economics, of course, does many other things. Um, and of course, now there are a lot of data collection enterprises. So yeah, Dizzy Gillespie had it right. But the historical setup was also we were physically separate. We were in the Firestone Library. Right. So it was like a laboratory set apart. Mm. And the number of good students who came out of there is simply phenomenal. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, I mentioned Bob Luan, but there were many others. John yeah. DiNardo, uh, Janet Curry, uh, I mean... Ron Oaxaca, who was yeah. first, my first PhD student, really. Mm. Uh, these were all very distinguished people. Josh Angris, of course, came along. I knew him from when he was an undergraduate. Yeah. Uh, so there were, there were lots of people who came in there. Um, and really, financing was not an issue. You, it, the problem is you had to work, right? And it's not enough. <laughs> Just because you have data, there's a lot more involved. Mm. So it was a, it was a, a very uh, hot-bedded place. But let's also remember we were picking low-lying fruit in a way. I mean, I still remember people publishing papers where they used instrumental variables and didn't tell you what the instruments were. Oh, wow. Quite common. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Somehow it was like magic. The know, good old days. Yeah. Yeah, instrumental variables and it's magic, right? It does solve <laughs> the right. problem now. So uh, not, no, we don't, no longer have to worry about endogeneity. Because, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was, there was low-lying fruit. The standards in the, in the, uh, you know, everybody in labor economics, a good example I often give is when Cardin Kruger did their paper on the minimum wage. Out, out, I mean, the thing about that paper that's so valuable is the fact that it was so well designed, right? I mean, they went, they went in the field before the actual law had been changed. But remember, it's just fast food chains, not including McDonald's in New Jersey. 
Mm -hmm. It doesn't cover very many people. And yet it had this influence, I think, because of the design. Yeah. And uh, uh, but most labor economists, now not others, but most labor economists, when the results came out, well, we can't find a very big effect. That didn't surprise anybody. Oh, really? Because, that was not surprising? No, no, because most of the work that had been done before that was so poor. Oh, it was so poor that everybody knew that nobody had any. In fact, one of the reasons that Carter and I had done an earlier paper it was kind of a similar design. Uh, we, it's, the paper has never been published. It's, it, it, it exists. It's out there. Uh, we did one where what we did was to take, I think it was from the national, I forget which longitudinal data set, but from one of them. And what we did is we took people who were in the year before the minimum, federal minimum wage increased were below the minimum and then, and then had data on them after that to see whether or not there was any, any effect. We couldn't find any effect in that. It's an old paper long before. Mm. Uh, and um, the uh, uh, so the, the I don't think very many they weren't very no, nobody was terribly shocked because everybody knew the work prior to that was so poor yeah there hadn't been any convincing work and so I think what Cardin Kruger had in mind Cardin's particular was that they should do something which it would be convincing right and then of course if it had turned out that they found an employment effect and it would have shown up in every textbook. Right. Uh, but it turned out they didn't find an employment effect. And yeah. so suddenly every principal teacher in America who, when they teach labor demand, only has one application. Yeah. It's kind of up the creek without a paddle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, that is so interesting. Um, uh, um, well, so the, you know, I, I think about, you know, it's like the Holy Trinity of Alan Kruger, David Card, and Josh Angris. And uh, I was just curious um, if you wouldn't mind telling me, you know, what, what, you know, what are some of your best memories about them as student and faculty and colleagues? What do you think made them sort of? Well, stand we were out? all in the same. We were all in this section in the library, so everybody was kind of thrown together. You know that there were other people in there too. Uh, Cecilia Rouse, for example. Now the chairman of the CEA, yeah. who I did a paper with, uh, we were did a wrote a paper on with twins. We went to Twinsburg together. Um, the uh, using twins as a data set that was a data collection. I did it first with Alan Kruger, and then we continued it. Uh, Cece and I. Um, there were lots of people there, and and graduate students always had offices uh, in amongst. So Angers was a graduate student when he was there. And everybody had basically, when he was at Princeton, he was working on this Vietnam uh, draft lottery. You know, a lot of people don't know this. Uh, David Bradford, who was on the Council of Young Advisors, he wrote a his PhD thesis written about the draft lottery, basically about the design of it. He was a theorist. So many of us knew about the draft lottery. Uh, so there were lots of examples. Uh, we used to have, for example, Mike Ransom was there. He was a graduate student there too. Uh, Mike Ransom is at BYU, just retired. Uh, we used to have, for example, we had a little red light. I never forget this. All of us had tried to estimate labor supply functions. Really, it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, You don't have good experiment. Uh, in mo most data sets that you get don't generate a good experiment for you. Right. In any event, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. We had a, we had a little red light. And there was a sign. And, and we had, there was a room in which you went in to do do work on your uh, 
back in those days, we weren't using laptops. None of that work was done on laptops. There were no laptops. Right. So we would go into the, we had a little kind of a computer room, which had keyboards and you could sit down and crunch some numbers. And that room had a glass uh, entryway and we had this red light and there was a sign on that said, uh, <laughs> you're supposed to turn this light on when you're estimating labor supply functions. And then the, 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 and the sign said, warning, when red light is lit, dangerous estimation is going on <laughs> labor supply functions. <laughs> that was a red, the red light. Or Angus, I remember he he uh, you know the first people to use this draft lottery design were here in San Francisco at UCSF, uh -huh. and they were interested in uh, post traumatic uh, stress syndrome. Oh. So they basically used the the design to study mental health of military mm -hmm. people that had been likely to serve in the military, and uh, I heard about that. Angus got onto it. And of course, then he came out here to the center. He actually visited out here in San Francisco, the guys that had been doing this. And uh, then when he came back, he was, you know, he would be, I, we, his, his office, you'd hear uh, blasting out of it, heard it on the grapevine, you know, one of the great Vietnam War <laughs> tunes. <laughs> he would be, he kind of got into the San Francisco vibe when he met these doctors, I think, because they were using the same, the same kind of experimental method. And there were stories like that. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, uh, um, the, so I was uh, also going to ask you a little bit about your AER editorship. Um, did, what do you think? Did you, do you, how do you feel that you're being editor at the AER? How do you feel like it changed, uh, sort of made this new type of econometrics more streamlined, standardized, acceptable to economists as a whole? Would you say that's true or would you say... Well, it's an interesting, I mean, I don't know if you know how I ran, the AER, when I took it over, uh, had just an incredible burden of papers. And one editor couldn't really, they could never possibly even try to read all the papers that they were going to try to publish. So the, what I did was to organize this co-editing system. Oh. Uh, so that was, that, it didn't, never happened until then. Oh, wow. uh, the co-editing system was, and I, and we designed it as a, as a freestanding. So I wanted very good people to do it. So I had my friend, John Taylor, I wanted him to handle the macro. Uh, I forgot. And I maybe asked, uh, Oh, uh, John Riley, I wanted him to handle the theory and I wanted Bob Haveman to handle the public finance. These are names that are still people that are around, but they're not very active anymore. And the first thing I learned was that, you know, I had it in mind, well, you know, you may accept the paper, but I'll have the ultimate say. And I realized when I, when I asked them if they would do it, they wouldn't even consider doing it under those circumstances. So the whole thing was decentralized. There were four editors. All I did was to decide where the papers went. And I did that mainly based on the fields. Right. Um, it influenced, I think it influenced everybody who was a co-editor in those days, like Paul Milgram, for example, was one of the co-editors, mm -hmm. uh, Nobel Prize last year, uh, year before last. Um, I think it influenced him because it gave him access to a kind of broad variety of papers, and we took it pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, editing, the editing was real. In other words, um, we didn't just rely on referees. Uh, I'm afraid the system now is kind of so decentralized that it's, uh, 
you know, it's really fighting your way through the referees without there being any editorial supervision. Right, right, right. I mean, I still remember papers that where uh, I remember one in particular. In fact, uh, he talks about it, George Borjas. Uh, his original, his paper on like applying the Roy model to immigration. Yeah. Uh, that was sent to the AER and the two referees, one of them was vivid about how bad it was. The other one thought it was very interesting. And I read the paper and I thought, well, this is, this is a, you know, no one has actually applied the Roy model and explained what its implications are for immigration. It was quite an important paper. Uh, but it's pretty clear that if I just listened to the referees, we would have rejected mm. at least one of the referees. Mm. Um, so there were, there was a sense in which we actively edited, but it didn't mean that, you know, I, I only handled certain papers, not, uh, I did handle some papers, surprisingly, in fields that I didn't normally work on, in which subsequently I actually did do some work. And a good example is industrial organization. There weren't that many papers in that area. And uh, uh, they, I, you know, there had to be a residual kind of claimant, right? So you got theory, macro, public finance, what's left? Right. <laughs> Somebody's got to deal with it. Yeah, that was a good experience for me. It took a lot. I, I, you know, I think it was very har- probably harmful to my own research agenda. Uh, it took too much time, but um, I do think it had. It may maybe the most influential journal uh, of its time, uh, and I think probably influenced the way journals operate in general. But I, you know, I'm always amazed that people talk to me and say something to me about, oh yes, and of course he was the editor of the AER. Well. I haven't been editor of the AER for 25 years. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, that was the well, I was I'm amazed anybody remembers it. Does anybody remember who the editor of any other journal was then? No, I'm sure they don't. Right. So it was influential, I think. Uh, and, um, but it was, you know, we, it, a lot of mistakes were made. The biggest one was that you probably should have started more journals, mm. which of course, subsequently they, they did. Right, 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 right. Uh, the, the Ashenfelter dip. So uh, I was wondering about the story um, about that a little bit more. If you've already covered it, it was, I didn't say it explicitly for people. Yeah. That... Well, Heckman, Heckman coined that phrase, actually. I, oh, really? Yeah. I didn't coin that phrase. Uh, he coined that phrase. Um, well, he was fascinated by it because he understood as an econometrician, he, he, this idea that you have to, you have to model a selection and you have to model the earning structure at the same time. Right. That was fascinating. He came up with an estimator that I still think was brilliant. His idea was that if you had a cement, let's say that you had, you didn't know exactly what the status was, but let's say that you had a, a symmetric serial correlation in, in the error term of the earnings function. If it, suppose it was symmetric, right? What that would mean is that if there was a selection on income, there would be a selection and there would be a downward. Uh, it, it, things would be below what you'd expect. But of course, the, the, the earnings nearby, that one would also be lower than you'd expect. So what he figured out was, well, if it's symmetric, that means the earnings after the program and the earnings before the program, even though we don't understand exactly how that works, they're nevertheless symmetric. So we could take a centered difference. Yeah. So his idea was if the training was at 64, Let's take 66 versus, uh, so th- the simple-minded way would be you take 65 versus 63, but you could also say, 
Uh, and that is a center difference. But of course, if that selection was based on 63, it wouldn't work. Uh-huh. But you could take 66 versus 62. Take that difference. Take the centered difference. Uh, that was his idea. I thought it was a very clever potential solution. <clears throat> it did. It, unfortunately, the correlation was so complicated that it didn't really work very well because that also has a specification test. So the, the so-called uh, uh, trends uh, deal, that's really a spe- I guess you understand that when I explain that it, the base level for the difference should be the same no matter which base level. The difference should be the same regardless of the base level you take. That's basically a specification test of the difference in differences model. And that, so this is another way to try to do it. But, you know, you, you get a test because if you have enough longitudinal data, if the symmetric differences are not the same, depend, you know, then, then it also means there's something wrong with the, with the uh, structure that you're designing. You, you, the, test, the test specification test was failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's really the parallel trends thing is really just a spec. I think it's another way to call it a specification test, but it's not really about trends. It doesn't right. have to be trends. Right, right. Uh, well, this is the last question I have. Um, uh, what do you think of as your most important work versus what you regard as your favorite work, if they're different, of your career? Um, well, my yeah, my favorite paper is, you know, it, it's, in a way it was very important, but it's not, nobody knows about it. My favorite paper, I still think it was, for me, it was a paper I loved doing and I was so surprised and happy about it. It was in my dissertation, actually, it was the effect of trade unions uh, on uh, racial income differences. Mm. And up to that time, trade unions often got a rap, especially from the New York Times, which had very strong trade unions. You know, the printing presses were run by uh, a trade union, international typesetters. And um, that paper, I, I had microdata for the first time that actually, so up until about 1967, you could not identify in microdata whether someone belonged to a union. Mm. There had been a huge fight up to that time about how many union members there were. In other words, unions wanted to claim there were a lot of members. Uh, people who were didn't like unions wanted to claim there weren't very many members and so on. They had a fight about this. The long, old story. And the way that the fraction of union membership was judged was, well, the, the unions uh, collect dues. That's one way to do it. And the other way was the unions tell you how many members they have, which led to a higher number, it turned out. Well, in 1967, the Office of Opportunity, Economic Opportunity, arranged to have the question asked on the CPS, uh, do you belong to a union? So it was the first time anybody could actually do a very simple thing, just count how many black people belong to unions and how many white people belong to unions. It's just count. We're not gonna do anything complicated here. All we're gonna do is ask, what's the fraction of black workers unionized? What's the fraction of white workers unionized? Is it the case, as many in the media say, that there are no black workers in unions, and that's why they're being hammered. This is counting. That was a breakthrough. That was that was talk about low-lying fruit. This is about as low as it gets. Yeah. And of course, the answer was that black workers were as likely to be members of trade unions as white workers, which automatically, you know, was like uh, basically shut down a whole line of research. Mm. So what happened was I wrote the paper and then I measured the union wage effect 
for black workers and for white workers. And if anything, the union wage effect for black workers is higher than it was for white workers. No surprise in a way, because unions tend to uh, reduce wage differences, in income in it. They reduce wage inequality, right? So if you're in a union, you're probably in a, the wage inequality has been reduced. And then the black guys typically being in the lower skilled jobs, the reduced inequality for them. So what I found was, the union wage effect was positive, not negative. Uh, and which was, and then of course, the way it was done, the, the rigor of the way I could actually do the analysis was so substantial that it shut down all future research. Wow, wow. And you never published so that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a literature that exists and then it stops. Wow. So nobody knows a thing about the paper. <laughs> Kill, killed, the, killed the literature and then it doesn't killed get cited anymore. It was, it was in the Journal of Political Economy. I was very proud of it because Greg, I'd sent a copy of it to Greg Lewis, the wonderful labor economist that influenced everybody that did yeah. empirical work. He's incredibly important influence, and uh, he thought it was he, he was thought it was brilliant, and and mm. he he actually suggested it to the editor of the JPE. So I don't, I mean, I had one referee, and he said this is great. Bang, that was it. Wow. So it was a, but it killed the literature. And I always loved that paper. I thought it yeah. was a surprise. You know, it was a, a shock. And the, and the surprise started with the fact that I discounted something. Right, 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 right. That's fascinating. That's a great, that's a great anecdote. Do you feel like that's what, so if it's not cited very much, then what's going to be the work that you feel like people are going to remember, uh, you know, that, that you're, you know, in, in what, what do you think that people are going to sort of um, say is there, is or Well, I think the, tra the training program, Work, yeah. the, the, the difference in difference of stuff is, is probably, you know, if you ask what's foundational, that's probably the most foundational thing. And yeah. it influences more than just evaluating, you know, it's, it's, it's now done for everything. So yeah. it became a, you know, in a sense, that's because methodology kind of trumps actual empirical findings. Yeah. And in a way, it's kind of a sad story because, uh, you know, if you get an empirical finding, like I did about trade unions, that's quite an important finding for public policy. Yeah, but it doesn't get recognized as being very important uh, in the way we, in the way that Nobel prizes, for example, are structured. Mm, right. right. I thought it was a little surprising. I was even a little bit surprised. I mean, the the way the citation goes for those for Angerson and uh, Imbens and Card, it leans toward trying to claim there's a methodological advance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, rather than any actual empirical advance. Right. But in my mind, I, I would say that's not really, I, I, th I thought the Nobel Prize was well-deserved, but mainly because the guys actually do substantive work. Yeah. They don't mainly do method. In fact, I can't really think of any methods that, that, that Card invented. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great, that's great. Well, I really appreciate this interview. I think uh, it's just such a, what are you doing with all this stuff, Scott? Well, uh, I am looking for uh, the story of Princeton. I wrote a book on causal inference earlier uh, last year and um, just love history of thought and taking over the history of thought class at my university and just want to. Oh, that's, that's, that's great. Learn. History of thought. Yeah, I, I, I actually did a little work on trying to figure out how many places had it. I don't know if you ever read this. I did. I wrote this review uh, of Sylvia Nasser's book, uh -huh. uh, which you know she had oh. this second book, not the first book, but the not second the book. Oh, okay. 
which was I think called the Great Breakthrough or something. I forget exactly. It's a history of thought book, really. Yeah. And uh, she got a good advance for it, so that's fine. But it didn't it didn't sell anything. And in it, I actually tried to figure out how many history of thought courses still exist. Yeah. Uh, you should definitely get to know this Neto guy. I've I've corresponded with him. His book is or his I I, I hope that dissertation can get turned into a book. It's brilliant. Um, it's he's so gonna, neat. He's going to he's gonna be at Duke. I think he might be. He's either going to be at Duke or he is at Duke. He's going to be on faculty at Duke. They have that history of thought department. They they have. I think he's visiting. Just visiting. Exactly. I'm not he's sure. Visiting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he, he is. You should be in touch with him because he will be in the U.S. Yeah. 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 I will. I will. I, I was so hey, pleased. Get him, to talk to your, get him to talk to your class. That's true. Yeah, I could do that. It would be nice since I don't have it prepped yet. I'll have him come teach a couple of lectures. Um, yeah, you actually, he's a, he's a very interesting guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I've never actually met him. I only heard saw him on Zoom, but yeah, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to leave shortly too. I'm, yeah, I'm, I, that, I don't want to take any more of your time. I, I'm, um, talking, to a, I'm uh, talking to a journalist about labor market competition. And, oh. uh, I think that's the, that's the low lying fruit right now. And it's also, uh, very shockingly, uh, little economic research on it. I mean, the yeah. Biden administration is moving ahead of most economists. Mm. What, why do you say that? Well, there aren't, there's almost no work. I mean, in, in on, you know, we, we now have evidence of collusion among, yeah. you know, there's the famous Adam Smith quote, employers never get together except to collude to try to suppress wages. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know where he got the evidence. In fact, that would make a great paper. You know, at Smith, I don't know if you ever, I use stuff from Smith because he did a lot of labor economics, but he often has built into his stuff empirical material. Yeah. But there's no, I can't, I don't know where it came from. Yeah. Well, how did he know that stuff? Right. right. Where, how did he know, you know, or he'll have like the famous chapter 10 where he goes through the comp saying differentials and he says, you know, explains it. Someone who is in one place gets more money than someone else. Where does he, where does that come from? Right. There's no, no footnotes, no nothing. Right. Uh, I would love to know where, you know, he has this famous, he's got a four page section in which he explains that employers are in constant collusion, uh, trying to suppress wages. Uh, he never talks about, by the way, uh, competitors trying to uh, collude to increase prices. There's right. no section about that in there. But he there is a section about wages. It's just about the labor markets. Yeah, so that's the only place where he really talks about collusion. Huh. Uh, you can, uh, if you haven't got it, I can try to send you the reference to it. But it's in Adam Smith. Oh, uh, and I would love to know where he got this. Where Where did he get this idea? I mean, it's an it's an empirical it's an empirical statement. Yeah. So you know, when I saw some of the stuff that was going on in Silicon Valley with the Silicon Valley, we yeah. now know there's all kinds of collusion over wage rates. And that's that's not even monopsony. <laughs> that's that's coordinated behavior. I mean, that's right. really bad. Right. It's certainly right. illegal. But there are plenty of people who think that it's all wrong. That what the antitrust laws should only be used to help consumers, not workers. What, what, I don't understand that. I mean, consumers are workers. <laughs> right. We're talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, anyway, I got to talk to this journalist. But I'm trying to get some. I've been working on this for 30 years, and it's finally getting a little bit of traction, but not much. Yeah, 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 yeah. I only know one labor. I only know one economist, uh, Mar Marshall Steinbaum, that works on this. That that's uh, it's really neat. Well, I really okay. appreciate it. Good talking to you. It's good talking to you too. Bye bye. Yep.
Bye.